0: Welcome to Breaking Doctrine, presented to you by the Combined Arms Doctrine Directorate at the Combined Arms Center at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. The views expressed here are those of the individual and do not represent the views of the Combined Arms Center, U.S.
1: Army, or U.S. government.
2: Welcome to Breaking Doctrine, a U.S. Army Combined Arms Center podcast on emerging doctrine and the Army's vision of warfare. Hello, I'm Lieutenant Colonel Lisa Becker. And this podcast topic is legal considerations in large-scale combat operations. We welcome back Lieutenant Colonel Dan Maurer, professor in the National Security Law Department at the Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School. We also have Major Charlie Fowler, author of FM 384, as a guest today. Charlie currently serves as a legal advisor at Army University located here on Fort Leavenworth. Gentlemen, welcome back to the show.
1: Thanks. Uh, It's either this or grading papers, so I would much rather be here. Thanks again.
2: In our last episode of Breaking Doctrine, we talked about the updates to FM 384, fleshed out legal functions, and talked the role of a staff officer. Today, we will focus more on large-scale combat operations and probably delve into the Law of Armed Conflict, or LOAC. Of note, FM 6-27, the Commander's Handbook on the Law of Land Warfare, covered expanded information on LOAC. Charlie, last episode, you talked about updates and changes to FM 384. What conversations did you have about incorporating a greater emphasis on LISCO in the manual and introducing our new operating concept, multi-domain operations?
0: Man, we had lots of conversations about this. So, like I said in the last podcast, you know, as the... Not only the doctrine developer for the JAG Corps, but uh, sitting in the office that reviews doctrine, we knew that this update was for FM3O was coming. And then we also had, you know, we got the initial draft and the final draft. So we knew what the language was and we were able to incorporate that draft language into our draft of 3-84, where appropriate. But then, um, so we have um, the National Security Law Division, which is you know, our, our, our heavy hitters in the national security law department are, they're constantly providing input. You know, in the JAG Corps, we're constantly thinking about the future. We're constantly thinking about, you know, what, what technology is coming, how could we advise, how is our advice to commanders and staff going to change, whether that's AI or hypersonic weapons or uh, fighting in an urban environment or fighting in a Counterterrorism or counterinsurgency environment. So we have the National Security Law Division. We also have OCTs at all the CD at the up here at the MCTP. We have the Schoolhouse, the JAG, Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School, where they're teaching national security law. Um, so when we are writing 3-84, lots of Judge Advocates were already having these conversations, and it's also getting input from other Judge Advocates. So whether that's OCTs or, or, you know, somebody MCTP observing I-Corps doing a, a training exercise, or whether that's the staff judge advocate who's the lead legal advisors at that exercise talking about how do we operate at multiple command posts? How do we provide legal advice if we have degraded communications? Or kind of taking a step back, how do we train commanders and anybody who might be a commander to make informed decisions in accordance with the law of war proportionality distinction, if every legal advisor that they could possibly get a hold of is dead. So it's, it's the, you know, it's a lot of changes that we have to think of for large scale combat operations that were, were not concerns in Iraq or Afghanistan where we had, you know, we could communicate with anybody anywhere as a, you know, when I, as a judge advocate in Afghanistan, I could pick up a phone and call somebody at ISAF or I could call somebody back at Fort Liberty. And it, you know, we had constant communications. I could, I could always get online and look up a joint publication. The current ROEs were always accessible. So it's, it's all these things that we have to think about that might change in large scale combat operations.
2: I want to dive into a few things that you said throughout the rest of the podcast so the first thing that I want to talk about is Lieutenant General Charles P.D., the 41st Judge Advocate General, and Colonel Peter Hayden voiced concern over preserving the commander's legal maneuver space on Battlefield Next. Um, they published that in March, the March-April 2021 edition of Military Review. I think that generated a lot of buzz in the JAG community, but maybe not the broader audiences in the Army branches. So, gentlemen, could you give listeners more insight into those concerns that Lieutenant General P.D. brought up in this article?
1: Um, so, fundamentally, General P.D. and Colonel Hayden were concerned that as the Army and as the Joint Force shifted its attention toward LISCO and MDO, that the lessons that they would naturally take from the, the history that that informed their, that their experience in decision-making as commanders is born out of 20 plus years of coin and counterterrorism operations. And those operations were heavily informed by legal constraints, put it that way. Um, Whether that was, uh, you know, tactical directives in Afghanistan that that changed from General McChrystal to General Petraeus back again, whether it was ROE changes, whether it was agreements with host nations, those kinds of conflicts, as Charlie alluded to, give commanders and their staff officer advisors more room to think more room to plan, more time, and not only that, not only is, is the decision space, the decision cycle longer, potentially, the kinds of rules imposed are are reflective of the kind of operation you're in. So you're fighting counterinsurgency, you're very, very concerned about the, the population, the civilian population, and maintaining the trust and credibility with them so they don't become insurgents too, and enable your missions. So you tailor your operations you might scale back the number of troops on the ground. You might scale back or uh, change the locus of your focus. You might decide to use certain weapons as opposed to other kinds of weapons to minimize collateral damage. Uh, you might only target at certain times of day or or, or night. Um, you might self-impose these constraints because the overarching goal requires you to do it, above kind of above and beyond what the law of armed conflict might require. So. That was the chief concern is that those commanders and the Jags take those lessons about policy driven uh, kind of additions to law of armed conflict that make sense in COIN and CT in many respects. And then thinking that they necessarily apply in the same way in an environment that is very, very bloody, very fast with with communications that are at best uncertain. With commanders making decisions at a much lower echelon. So, what a division or corps JTF commander might have the authority to do in Afghanistan, that might necessarily be pushed down to a battalion or company or battery commander in a LISCO, depending on on what it is and, and and what the fight is. So, as opposed to having a you know a well-staffed, high-tech jock, where the the JAG team is readily available and kind of at the staff and at the commander's hip for deliberate targeting or dynamic targeting decisions as as Charlie said we might not be there at all the command post you know if the commander has survived much of the staff might not depending on where they are and that commander needs to be familiar enough with what the law at at the very least demands so that we maintain our credibility and legitimacy and, and not committing war crimes and and continuing with the policy of of following the law of war no matter what kind of conflict it is so the shift is having commanders reassess what they know or think they know about the law. And I'll give one quick anecdotal um, story here that, that comes from out of, out of uh, Germany, the JMTC, where our JAG observer controllers report back that in a LISCO type fight, brigade and battalion commanders are very reluctant to use their combat power to destroy the enemy in in somewhat obvious ways because of of fear or an assumption that the law of war prevents them from doing it because the rules in Afghanistan or or Iraq would have prevented them from doing it. So, you know, dropping artillery or indirect fire generally in a populated area where you might expect 100 or 500 civilian casualties certainly would not have been permitted in in Afghanistan or Iraq um, after the initial invasions. The you know, ROE changed, the tactical directives changed, the mission changed, it was no longer us fighting Saddam Hussein and the Iraqi government, it was us fighting at the point. So those kinds of, that toleration would not be there. But in Alesco, you might have to do that. You might have to drop a bomb or two or artillery barrage uh, in a densely populated area if it means you're able to take out the enemy division headquarters. And what that means is the commander on the ground has the legal duty and responsibility to weigh two things under under the law of war. One is the anticipated, what they think the collateral damage might be if they choose to do what they're gonna do versus the anticipated, concrete, direct military advantage they think they're gonna get by doing what they wanna do. And there's no number, there's no line, there's no quantification that is out there. It's the commander's best judgment. And sometimes it might mean a collateral damage number that is very high, but the military payoff is even higher, and that would be the legal argument to justify it and say, no, it's not a law of war violation. It's not a war crime because under the circumstances, they had to make the tough call and terrible things happen in LISCOs. You don't want that to happen. You want to take all feasible precautions that you can. But commanders need to understand what the what the law, what the, what the legal test is. And most of those tests, so to speak, are – what we call totality of the circumstances. You know, context matters. The context of warfare in Afghanistan and coin is different from Hamas Israel, different from Ukraine, Russia, different from, you know, if, if we were in a fight in the Pacific, different entirely. But the law is the law, but the law works differently in each of those environments. And what PD and Hayden were concerned about was the lack of mental flexibility, the assumption that the law applies the same way, regardless of context. So that was the shift. And the way we're translating that here at the the schoolhouse is not only do we incorporate that caution to our our basic course students, the brand new JAGs, to our more seasoned JAGs that are here for a year for the graduate course that are majors. Uh, We also teach that to an audience of battalion and brigade commanders who come in for what's called the solo or the senior officer legal orientation. They come in for a week. And they get um, a smattering of all the different legal subjects that they're going to need to be at least familiar with as as incoming commanders. And for those that are going into operational billets, they get a day's worth of additional national security law training. And we are trying to incorporate that idea of, hey, you need to understand the basic LOAC, law of and conflict principles of distinction, proportionality and humanity and military necessity and honor. You need to understand how that works not just what the words mean, because you might have to do it yourself without the advice and counsel of a JAG uh, within arm's reach or, or even by electronic means. So, so that, yeah, go ahead.
2: So you're reteaching the commanders, you know, rewiring their muscle memory from what they knew during counterinsurgency or counterinsurgency operations. And then for the JAGs, you're saying, hey, your commanders might be wired this way they need to get rewired is that kind of what you're saying yeah i i I
1: wouldn't i I wouldn't call it rewiring because that kind of sounds a little negative but it's i think reframing it's it's okay um not i mean not only do they have to you know reframe what they know about the weapons they can use and the assets they bring to bear their capabilities because you know you're going to be doing different things different mission sets in a than you wouldn't coin not only you have different tools that you have to think about there's a different different set of legal parameters. That you, that you need to think through because of those new weapons and because of the new mission. And we don't make assumptions that that all of the new commanders don't know this already, but we wanna try to get ahead of it and be proactive and try to communicate that, that we understand that there's a difference. The application of the fundamental law, fundamental law doesn't change, but the application of it must, and we're there to help. And we want them to understand why we're there to help. And, but again, as Charlie said, all the Jags might be dead and they're gonna have to make decisions uh, and they can't just say, "Well, I did it, and I didn't have a jag, so I didn't have to think about it. or I did it, and we killed a bunch of people unnecessarily, but I didn't have a jag advise me, so I'm okay that That can't be the right answer. so mm-hmm. it, it's it's um it's a mental framework shift as much as um an operational and capability shift from coin to to lisco.
2: I want to keep talking about like those those mind the shifts from coin to to Lisco when it comes to commanders. You know, I know commanders are grappling with different challenges in multi-domain operations. I don't necessarily know if they're thinking about, um, aside from the solo co- course, thinking about what their legal support is going to be like in MDO or LISCO. So can you talk more than just, hey, your jack um, might not be next to you? Um, what are the other differences that they need to start thinking about when it comes to legal operations?
1: Right. So, um Kind of off the top of my head, I can think that, you know, if there's misconduct in the ranks, you know, good order and discipline issues, it's going to necessarily be harder to adjudicate, right? It might be harder to get access to defense counsel. If there's a a military victim involved of a a sexual nature, it might be harder to get a special victim counsel there. It's going to be necessarily more challenging to convince a commander that we need to fly in or drive in a, a JAG to support. A legal issue on a FOB when the chief concern of that of that uh, commander is not getting bombed and not you know not having their FOB overrun or or displacing not even working at a FOB you know temporarily being here then there then there you know how do you how do you manage that kind of traditional legal support that would be easier to do in a more stabilized area like you know Joint Base Balad north of Baghdad in in Iraq mm-hmm. um, you know. Uh, that that's possible there. It, it's like, you know, we used to joke that it was Fort Hood East. Um, so big and so so well established, but that that will be very unlikely in a, in a in a list at least that that's what we would anticipate. So how do you provide that basic level of support that they're used to? The other thing that I think uh, commanders should be aware of, and I actually just taught a class on this and it was the very first class that we've ever done on it was. Um, what's called the Civilian Harm Mitigation Response Action Plan, or Chimrap, C-H-M-R-A-P. And what, what I just said about commanders understanding the basic LOAC principles and being comfortable making decisions that they would not have been comfortable making in COIN or counterterrorism operations, that has a caveat now. The caveat is this new policy that comes from secretary austin and it in essence imposes an additional layer of planning considerations for civilian harm and civilian harm is broadly construed broadly meaning right not just death or loss of a limb but second and third order consequences of of taking out a road does that impact the sewage system underneath um, are we affecting, you know, commercial transport to the market, and how, how, what, what kind of economic effect is that going to have on the surrounding population? Um, what kind of, you know, second, third order medical consequences can we foresee by blockading something, or, or laying siege to something, um, or taking out some kind of civilian infrastructure because it's being used for military purposes? What, what other effects are we going to have? Commanders have always had to think about that to some degree. The law. The Geneva Conventions allow for some amount of collateral damage. Just because you have collateral damage doesn't mean it's a war crime. It understands that that's a part of warfare and some of it is inevitable, but we have to mitigate it wherever we can. But this new policy extends that duty a bit. And it creates, um, it it literally creates new offices, a new, uh, brand new center of excellence is being stood up in the DC area called the Civilian Protection Center of Excellence. And it's meant to be an enterprise-wide, DOD-wide hub of best practices, analytical trend analysis, investigative repository, SME, reach back, all those things that a center of excellence you think would be able to do, mm-hmm. kind of like the safety center. I think that's the closest analogy. The idea being that these are experts in all those direct and then second, third, fourth order consequences of civilian harm that would be really great to know. Assuming you have the time and space to think about it, and it makes perfect sense because it it really comes out of 20 years of fighting coin and CT and learning those best practices after after mistakes were made. And in in the wake of uh, a couple of high profile incidents in Afghanistan and Syria, congressional interest spiked, DOD interest spiked about how we do civilian harm mitigation kind of like before the boom and after the boom. Mm -hmm. How we prepare our units and our commanders to make strike decisions that are compliant with the law of war, that consider civilian harm and damage and collateral effects. And then post-boom, really importantly, how we assess, how we report, how we investigate, how we hold accountable. And this plan, this Chimrap, it really follows on three, two or three earlier DOD or Joint Staff-driven internal studies. One of them was by RAND. And all of them basically pointed to, well, they all pointed to similar concerns and and the concerns revolved around this inconsistent ability for commands, COCOM and JTF level commands to do investigations candidly, transparently, accurately, according to the very own timelines of the regulations that we, we have. Um, and that leads to an appearance that we're trying to hide something or that we don't care. And that erodes trust and credibility and legitimacy, which are all things that we want to have, regardless of where we are and what mission we're doing. So the idea is create this new center of excellence, create new staff positions at COCOM headquarters that are staffed with experts in the civilian environment. The issue is, like I said, it's driven by experiences and lessons learned from 20 years of COIN and CT. Mm-hmm. where You can have almost constant visibility and great communication and great situational awareness and all those wonderful things that can help mitigate both pre-boom mistakes and then after boom assessments and the idea being to kind of take those best practices and generalize them is great because you know centcom was doing it one way PACOM was doing it another way africom was doing it a third way and, and and even within those combat commands the practice wasn't wasn't comprehensive or consistent. So DoD wants to generalize it, systematize it, which is great, but how do you apply that to Alisco, right? If, if you have this additional cell or additional staff consideration of, of the civilian environment using new techniques, new tools, new systems, new data, processing, new analytical tools, new experts, all to kind of help the commander understand the civilian environment uh, as much as the adversarial environment, does that leave time for the commander and a to actually do operations, right? Do we even have the ability to, to, to utilize those resources if uh-huh. we don't have comms, if we don't have, if we go blackout, you know, if we're all on hard copy again, can we even do those things? So again, what makes sense in COIN or CT has to be rethought and applied differently in Lisco. So the other thing that we're we're now required to start talking to commanders about at our solo course is Chimrap. So for example, we teach this solo course uh seven or eight times a year. And the audience is typically, I don't know, anywhere between 30 and 60 of these 05s and 06s. And on the last day, I teach a block of uh, a class on war crimes and a class on command responsibility. And so what a commander what a commander's duty is to prevent or investigate allegations and what we're now going to do is do all those two things and then add to that a class on the civilian harm mitigation response action plan and it's kind of i don't want to say it's ivory tower or or academic at this point it's a it's a con it's a concept it's a plan the plan is 36 pages long or or, or thereabouts but there's a DOTY coming out so as we sit here in december of 23 we anticipate that new DOTY to be signed by secdef either imminently within a few weeks or shortly after the new year. And that DOTI will lay out very specific things taken from the plan that will impose requirements and additional duties on commanders and staffs. And I don't know what those are going to be just yet, but I think Mm -hmm. a lot of them are going to be focused on the post-boom, what to do after that report, which again begs the question of, well, if you're in a a LISCO and you're constantly moving and you're constantly under fire, how are you going to do those things? Yeah. So that's going to be up to the combatant commands to figure out combatant command by combatant command, which of course will lead to different practices and, and TTPs over time, which will then draw out a criticism that we're being inconsistent again. So there's a dilemma, but too early to 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 judge whether it's going to be effective or not because we haven't done it yet. And the DODI is forthcoming, and then a chairman's instruction will come after that. They'll even even more detailed about how we're going to do this. So that's just another thing that commanders now have to have to consider uh in this new framework mindset of, of not only applying the law cor- correctly under the circumstances but also considering civilian harm in a in a broader way if they can so uh, I don't envy com- commanders all that much um, fighting lisco
2: i you you talked about civilians within this so may or may not be related it just might be that we're talking civilians. But this past week, I heard on the the news the term windowsill intelligence. Um, that was the first time I'd heard it. And the journalist was referencing civilian resistance within Kherson in Ukraine. And so maybe you can talk some other anecdotes about Ukraine and Israel and civilian interactions. But, you know, you're talking this policy where we're mitigating um, harm to them. But if they are... Providing intelligence, if they are interacting um, with the military arm, I guess. What are your thoughts on that? How how do we wrestle with that piece?
1: Yeah, so that that's a great question, and it, it, there there is an answer for it. There's a there's a way of thinking about it, and it's called direct participation in hostilities. And this is a term that is not just an American term. It's not just an, an American Army term. It's, it's a term of art within the law of armed conflict community shared by every nation that cares and the International Committee for the Red Cross, which, you know, has a, a duty to observe and comment. And this idea is, you know, civilians are protected from direct attacks. Geneva Conventions, the Hague Conventions all say you don't attack civilians. The exception to that is you're supposed to only orient your attacks against military targets. Now, if civilians civilian objects get harmed in the process that's called collateral damage but you can't attack you can't make them the object of the attack the exception to that is when they are directly participating in hostilities and the u.s has a way of defining that some of our allies have a different way of defining that and many in the international ngo community have a different way of defining that we have a very broad view of it so if you think about coin and counterterrorism uh, the idea that You know, we have a drone footage over a road and then we see a military aged male uh, apparently, you know, digging a hole in placing what looks to be a mortar round, stringing wire back across the road and then lying in a covered and concealed position. What is that person doing Well, well, they're in placing an IED? Um, Mm -hmm. Is is, that does that make them a target? Are they can we can we bomb them? Can we shoot them? Can we treat them as if they were an enemy combatant, a member of an enemy armed force? The answer is. For a certain period of time, yes, we can. The issue is how long on, on the back end and the front end of that. When do they start and when do they stop directly participating in hostilities? So our view is that there's no revolving door, so to speak. Like You can't just you know, shoot at us and then drop your weapon and walk away and suddenly you're protected um, mm. because you're not actively shooting at me right then and there. There are some in the international community that view DPH, direct participation in hostilities, that narrowly that they have to be actively engaged in in harming us or attempting to harm us before we can treat them as a hostile. We don't take that view, right? So and that is that comes out of experience and practice dealing with people who build and finance and in place and detonate things like IEDs, insurgents. They they're not obviously enemy, they they look like everybody else and there's a limited window in which they are clearly acting like a like a hostile. So is it reasonable to only limit our ability to target them in that narrow 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 window our policy our our view the u.s view and here i am speaking for the u.s view is that that window is much wider and depending on the circumstances if there's a pattern of behavior in which they're acting like a member of the armed forces would act and contributing to the fight even if they're not actively pushing a button or pulling a trigger they are still targetable but that's the u.s view a different view a, a largely european view is no it's it's tighter so here's here's an, an interesting problem in ukraine the ukrainian ministry of defense has developed an app called um the EP eppo app I, I, I couldn't tell you what it translates to but it it's e little e big p big p big o and mm-hmm. it's it's for free you download it as long as you're an adult ukrainian you can download this app for free and it was developed by Ukrainian software engineers and I think in in some way U.S. or other um, European software firms were involved in the development too but the bottom line is this app allows a user to basically augment the Ukrainian air defense so if very often uh, you know a drone a Russian drone helicopter missile uh, or other flying object uh, is seen and it's below radar the local, you know, air defense battery in an urban area in Ukraine is not going to not going to pick it up, and that thing is going to detonate or it's going to cause harm. This app allows the the user to basically be another set of eyes for the air defense. So if a citizen happens to see something flying overhead and they think it's a, a you know a Russian Mig, that wouldn't be the great example because it's flying really high. A Russian drone or a Russian helicopter. Mm-hmm. Um, and they see it, they can pick up their phone, they open up the app, they point the camera of their phone at the thing in the sky, they select a you know big red icon, it is either a missile or a drone or a helicopter or a plane on it. They point it, they hit the button, and that data, that picture, and that capture is sent with all the, the telemetry, the azimuth, the, oh. all that information about that thing is sent directly to the nearest air defense artillery battery in Ukraine then uses that information to target the incoming thing and shoot it down that started in october of last year and has had some success um, it has been used by ukrainian civilians to help ada drop down russian threats now we argue well that's novel right there's never been an app that does that before and that app doesn't do anything else it simply does that so is that person directly participating in hostilities are they effectively contributing to the Ukrainian military by doing that? Now, so the answer turns on this idea of DPH. But because it's a phone, it's different. Or is it? We analogize it to being a spotter, right? So if you've got a 14-year-old on a rooftop with a cell phone and a pair of binoculars, and we know that that person is observing U.S. movements, and then sending that information to a militia, and then that militia then uses that information to ambush the U.S. forces, that person is considered a spotter. And that and, and and most of military history has treated spotters as members of an armed force they are they're helping materially with the with the fight even if they're not armed themselves
2: is that u.s military history or
1: world history okay spotters have, have basically always been fair game the question is when are they spotting and when are they not spotting so that, that doesn't mean you have to attack them it just means you could attack them and not be breaking international law by doing it. You're not attacking civilians. You're attacking a DPHing civilian, a civilian who's lost their protection under international law because they're directly participating. They take that risk. It's like caveat emptor, buyer beware. You you know, you do this, you can do it, but for that time that you're doing it, you are you are fair game for the adversary. They can if they see you and they know what you're doing, they can attack you. And they're not committing a war crime when they do it, as much as we would think it would be. So the issue here is like if if we were to apply our DPH standard to the app user, we'd have to ask when does that DPHing begin and end? Is it when they download, does it, you know, when they download the app the first time, are they now DPHing? Because there's no other mm-hmm. use for it. They voluntarily did it, they know what it's for, and they probably have an intent to use it whenever they can. So do we consider them DPHing then? Probably not. But what about when they walk outside and they take it out of their pocket? Are they DPHing then? What about when they lift it to the sky? What about when they open the app? What about when they push the button? I think we can all agree that when they push the button and they send the data, that's probably DPHing And under our interpretation or anybody's interpretation of the law. They would be targeted. And not that they would, we would, but they could be. Now Great. the question is, when does it stop? When they close the app, when they drop their phone in their pocket, when they turn their phone off, when the phone runs out of battery, When they go back to their house when they get rid of the app no one knows because this is a novel thing here it is you have ukrainians who are fighting for their existential sovereign rights and uh, fighting against one of the world's largest militaries and the ukrainian government has basically enlisted the voluntary support of the entire community uh as one would expect a rational government to do you know defend where we can and a rational Ukrainian, if they have the ability to do it, would not be unreasonable in doing it. The question is, do they know that when they're doing it, they're DPHing in the same sense that a spotter on a rooftop is, or DPHing in the same sense that, you know, a, a military-aged male on the side of the road digging a hole and putting a mortar round is DPHing. Do they know that? I don't know. And it might not matter to them even if they did know it, because they're willing to take that risk because of the nature of the conflict that they're in. So that's just an example of how modern technology is is not only changing how armies fight and how how civilians support that fight, but also changing what the you know, how the forcing us to question how the law would apply in these new novel situations. Again, if the U.S. were judging Russia, if Russia were to attack the you know, the grandmother who has the app and uses it a couple of times and they somehow have the technology to figure out that that grandmother has the app on her phone and has used it before, they would attack her, or they could attack her lawfully. And if they did, we would probably say that's a war crime. But how is that different than us doing it in Afghanistan or Iraq with someone who's mm. placing a bomb or has a cell phone and a pair of binoculars? They, if they applied our version of DPH, I don't know, right? So that again, that just is an example that we talk about here in the law school about the the intersection of modern tech and age-old principles of of battlefield law. And that's something that commanders are going to have to grapple with. I don't know how they're going to do it.
2: We've talked about the law of armed conflict, which is law. You've talked policy, policy that we've had during counterinsurgency operations, policy that came out with the Civilian Harm Mitigation Response Action Plan. How does war crimes or how do war crimes fit into that?
1: So... War crimes, I think the first point to be made is that a war crime could be committed regardless of whether we call it a war or not. A war crime could be committed by a service member against a civilian or protected person in humanitarian operations or counterterrorism or COIN or ALESCO. It doesn't matter if we call it a war, if it is a war, how big it is, how long it's been going on. Uh, It it doesn't matter. War crime is a violation of certain people's protected status under under the law of war so under under the Geneva conventions primarily and one interesting thing about war crimes is once they are alleged to have happened it's entirely on the unit that knows of that alle- allegation to start the process of of doing anything about it right it, there's no like independent usually no independent law enforcement detective agency floating around the battlefield, taking notes and making sure that we're not committing law and war violations. Um, it's going to be raised by an NGO or a civilian or a prisoner mm-hmm. of war or one of our own soldiers might say something or or have some evidence of it. It's going to come up through channels, in other words, and the command now has a duty. And there's actually a, a DOD directive about this that says under what conditions the chain of command has a duty to forward that allegation up the chain of command. That will spark an investigation. And so there's a duty there, but let's say an allegation bears fruit and during the investigation, there's there's enough evidence to justify going forward with like a criminal trial uh, for that person. So under our law, under the UCMJ, we can court martial um, an enemy POW if there's evidence they committed war crimes prior to capture. We can actually have a court-martial for that enemy soldier. We could do military commissions, which are kind of ad hoc, the kinds of things that we're doing down for our detainees in Guantanamo that are kind of a hybrid court-martial federal hearing. We could set one of those up. Um, After World War II, the Nuremberg trial and Mm -hmm. and, uh, the Tokyo war crimes trials, those were essentially military commissions. You know, military judges uh, for some of them, military prosecutors for some of them. And that's another way to do it for enemy combatants that we capture that are thought to have committed war crimes. For U.S. soldiers that are potential suspects, um, it's interesting because the last time a U.S. I'll put it this way. The last time an American soldier was prosecuted, convicted, and sentenced for war crimes was 1865. Captain Henry Wirtz, the commandant of the Andersonville Prison Complex in South Carolina, or I think it was South Carolina. Con- a confederate that's why i said american not a u.s service member but okay. american that was the last time a u.s service member was tried and convicted on the charge sheet for violating the laws of war which is amazing when you think about it and, and most people wouldn't have guessed that i asked that question of every class i teach this to uh, you know who was the last person and they'll say they'll mention some names from iraq or afghanistan they'll certainly mention lieutenant Kali from the Lai incident in vietnam mm-hmm. um, they can't possibly imagine that it happened in 1865. Now, there was one case in Vietnam where a junior soldier was initially charged with violating the laws of war. I couldn't I couldn't tell you what it was exactly, but it was never brought to trial for whatever reason. So we don't count. it. We don't count that. So the last time there was a trial and a conviction and a sentence, it was 1865. So what about all those other people that were mentioned? You know, President Trump in 2018, pardoned three people, three officers for what could have been prosecuted as war crimes. Lieutenant Behenna, Lieutenant Lawrence, and Major Goldstein for things that they did in Iraq and Afghanistan that that were quite clearly violations of the law of war. He gave clemency. He reduced the sentence for the Navy SEAL, Eddie Gallagher. These were the first instances in history, in American history, of a U.S. president granting pardons for U.S. service members who did things that could have been prosecuted as war crimes. First time ever first three and and so far the only three, uh, which is a pretty big deal. Mm-hmm. Now, I say could have been prosecuted as war crimes. They weren't. They were prosecuted for the underlying offense of murder. And they were not called war crimes. Now, I think that's interesting because I think murder or war crime by murder is categorically different than just, you know, quote unquote, plain old murder. They're both terrible things. They're both crimes. They both deserve punishment. But when you when you murder somebody in the context of, a, of warfare, where you are killing someone that, you know, you have a lawful right to use violence, but you use that ability, that opportunity to commit this heinous offense, somehow makes it worse. It deserves to be labeled something different than just homicide. But these three individuals are all charged with the underlying offense. Sergeant Bales Uh, who famously or infamously in Afghanistan murdered 17 or 18 men, women, and children in a a local village near Asbab, was charged with that many counts of murder, wasn't charged with committing a war crime. And there's no real clear reason why in our uh, doctrine, in FM 6-27, the Commander's Legal Handbook, it talks a little bit about this, and it simply says usually – U.S. service members who are accused of violating the law of war are charged with the underlying offense. So all it says is the practice has been this. There's no policy. There's no directive. There's no statute. There's no case law. There's nothing legally binding on a prosecutor that says you can't charge it as a war crime. But we don't simply by practice. So precedent has said or or established that we don't do that. So that kind of you know begs the question, what value do we get in charging it as a war crime or not? And we have an open discussion about this in our classes, like why should we call it a war crime and why should we not call it a war crime? Our allies call it war crimes. Australia is charging many of its soft soldiers with war crimes the u k has has convicted at least one of its soldiers for war crime uh, arising out of I think Iraq or Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Um, but we don't we have. Terrible, heinous things happen that could have been charged that way, that were clearly violations of the law of war, but we don't call it that. So why not? Again, I think it goes back to this sense that calling it a war crime is just categorically different, categorically worse than calling it just murder, right? Because what does it say about one's nation's armed forces? You know, we train them, we equip them, we send them off, we train them in the law of war, and then they go do this horrible thing. Do we want to acknowledge that? As doing exactly what we told them not to do, or do we want to just say this is a bad apple? They did a bad thing. They're going to get punished accordingly. You could have a debate about this. You could argue one side or the other about whether it's appropriate to label it as such or not. Whether we we gain credibility or lose credibility in the eyes of NGOs or partners and allies when we don't call it what it is. So that's just an open debate right now. Um, I don't know if it's a debate outside these walls or not. Probably not. But um, I think it's an interesting legal and policy intersection. And for the time being, anyway, I don't see that changing anytime soon. So you might, again, see in a LISCO, terrible things happen and it being treated in a way that maybe our allies wouldn't, right? So the other thing that makes the war crime discussion interesting in terms of LISCO is, again, going back to our earlier point about what is tolerated or what is acceptable kind of collateral damage. Mm -hmm. Um, in COIN versus a Again, we haven't fought a a true LISCO really since, I guess you could say the invasion of Iraq in 2003 for that limited period of time. Um, And then prior to that, the Persian Gulf War. Right. Other than those have been, you know, smaller scale, uh, limited war type COIN counterterrorism. So our recent experience is all different. And again, our toleration for what is acceptable or not is likely to change, I would think. The issue is, would the public agree with that? Would the public see if the U.S. is engaged in a large-scale armed conflict for some extended period of time and that there are reports of us doing the kinds of, let's let's say the kinds of operations that Israel is doing in, uh, in, in the West Bank right now, or Gaza, excuse me, uh, right now. If we were doing similar things, would our own public condemn us as war criminals? Would the international community condemn us as war criminals, even though we're, what we're doing is arguably – Authorized under the law of war, because the commander has done that proportionality assessment, they weighed the value of that military target against the the possible loss of, of civilian life and made a decision quickly, you know, quick example, just the other day, President Biden commented about what he called the indiscriminate attacks or indiscriminate operations or indiscriminate bombing by Israel in in Gaza against Hamas. And the use of the word indiscriminate is interesting. And this kind of harkens back to that article I wrote about calling it a war crime or not. Indiscriminate has a legal meaning. Um, It means it was disproportionate. It means it was a a low act violation. Calling it indiscriminate means something legally. I don't think that was what the president meant by it. I don't think he was accusing Israel of committing war crimes. I think he would say Israel is within its rights. It's legal authority to do what it's doing, but, but maybe shouldn't do it to the scale it's doing it. I think that's the message that the global community is is apparently sending to Israel, too. There was a General Assembly vote yesterday that that called for a ceasefire uh, for both parties. And so there's a generalized sense that Israel's operations have have exceeded the bounds of what is necessary. So, again, if if the U.S. close ally of Israel is doing something like Israel's doing in Alisco, would we face the same kinds of, of public skepticism? Or public uh, calls for accountability, would we would we be facing charges of war crimes uh, in the same way that, that Israel is facing its own allegations of war crimes? Because they're they're doing or causing so much widespread damage that it just has the appearance that it couldn't possibly be lawful, lawfully uh, permitted. Whereas a strict reading of the law would probably say it's permitted. So those are the the areas I think are are most implicated when we talk about war crimes and we talk about the U.S. potential involvement in alisco going forward.
2: Okay. Thanks for the insights. Is there anything else, gentlemen, that you would like to share with our listeners or listeners think about?
0: No, ma'am.
1: No, I think they covered it.
2: Thanks for joining us again on Breaking Doctrine. Just like writing new doctrine is a team effort, breaking doctrine takes a team. Without the crew and Special Doctrine Division here at CAD, we wouldn't be able to bring you this show. Our production is coordinated by Mr. Ted Crisco, and our editing and sound is provided by Captain Wyatt Harper. Please don't forget to subscribe on Google, Apple, or Spotify Podcasts, and follow us on social media at U.S. Army Doctrine to get updates on new podcasts, Doctrine Digest videos, and publications finally, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the official position of the United States Army, the U.S. Army Training and Doctrine Command, the Combined Arms Center, or the JAG Corps. I'm Lieutenant Colonel Lisa Becker, and this has been Breaking Doctrine.